You should see me in a crowd. Oh, no, no, I've got that stuck in my head, I, too. Dude, welcome to my fucking hell. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> <laughs> I had a really sad realization last night. Why is that? That, um, like, Billie Eilish is just so cool, and I'll, I'll probably never be as cool as Billie Eilish. Yeah, well, you know, that's most of us. <laughs> yeah, but, like... She has, like, just, a whole staff behind her getting making hers. I don't, I think she'd be cool without the staff. And it just, I don't know, it just made me kind of sad. It's like, it was a very old lady moment where I was just like, man, I blew my shot to be as cool as Billie Eilish. I remember my my most stark old man moment was looking up Takashi 6ix9ine when he was at the peak of his popularity. And I was just like, yep, I'm old. Yeah. I am old. I was just like, you know, this, this is the guy that, that you guys are all about. Like, it's too late for us, folks. We're yeah, all no. we're all much too old to be cool. Yeah. I'm really cool. I don't know what you're. Yo, about. you are. Uh, you're officially the coolest on the pod. Yeah, no, you have a TikTok no. account. No. Yeah, I'm really. Cool. Yeah, you're. I have a TikTok account. Oh, you do? Okay, well. No, I'm still cooler. <laughs> how do you? How do you get that? Where? How, what makes you think that you're cooler than either Chris or I? I believe it. That doesn't make you cool. That makes you a tryhard. Actually, uh, no, no. I that think makes, it makes you a tryhard. Cool. No, no, I'm cool. Okay. Well, we'll let the I'm people no decide. Expert. All right, I'm going to set a timer for what do you think? 15 or 20 minutes? Let's do it in 15. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. Save 15 our sanity set points. a timer for 15 minutes. Thank you, Siri. All right. So, we're going to do this and then we're going to fucking move on to something important. But uh Tuesday was a rough day for many of us, I think. And uh, Liz Warren is a fucking piece of shit, and I hate her. Uh, I I think she sucks. Um, I can't believe that she hasn't endorsed Bernie yet. If she doesn't do it, we're recording this on Sunday. If she doesn't do it by today, her endorsement officially becomes absolutely meaningless because she's not campaigning for him in Michigan, which he which he really 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 fucking needs to win. Needs to win it by a lot. Um. And yeah, I just can't believe she's on fucking SNL with Kate McKinnon, like making jokes about maybe. And did you see this? That she said, maybe I'll endorse, maybe I'll pull a New York Times and endorse them both. It's it's interesting that you say that, Brittany, because um, I also fucking hate Elizabeth Warren uh, for uh, similar reasons, you know, because she is uh, just that what, what makes me hate her most of all is her is what she's doing to the people that support her. because. Like, they believed in her. They, um, I think, understandably, you know, were, were really excited about what she had to offer. And um, now she's, like, kind of shitting on all of that. Yeah. You know, like, not even what she uh, campaigned on, but what she th- told people that, like, she would bring about. Right. And instead, it, 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 she is really kind of treating all of that, like, aesthetic. Like, like it, it's not, that's not... What she was, her plans, her, her medium post plans were not meaningful to her because if they were, then it would be so clear who you should support and, and um, how important it would be to support them as soon as fucking possible because all all of your support and all of your resources behind them. Yeah. All the mommies and daddies need it. Yeah. What about the mommas and daddies out there? Yeah. And she she trying to raise their native American children. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> I I can't remember a silence that's been as deafening as yeah. this. It says so much. Yeah. And like as much as it 
I get wanting to be right, but like I wanted to be wrong. <laughs> or as it relates to Liz Warren, you know, I brought up on the previous pod several times, but is you is or is you ain't is a question that's fundamental to every politician. And with Liz, it was like, for me personally, incredibly uh, important question that was like not really answered, I guess, until now, <laughs> like for sure, for sure. But it's yeah. like, ain't, you know? Yeah, you know, and, and that's d- disappointing. So. I, I was never like a Warren stan. In 2016, I liked her and I wished she had run this this election cycle when she started to run. I was glad that she was in the field. I didn't want her to win the nomination because I wanted Bernie Sanders to win the nomination because he doesn't have a history of being a Republican and lying about his ethnicity. But, you know, whatever. Uh, I was glad she was there because she was another progressive voice to, you know, kind of fill in this like gaping hole in Democratic party, like mainstream discourse that lacks progressive voices. Uh, When she was doing really well back in whatever it was, October of last year, I was like, great, you know, if she becomes a nominee, like if Bernie doesn't and she wins it, at least that's, you know, somebody more progressive than anybody else in the field. I would settle for that. And over time, it's just every fucking step she has made has made her more and more distasteful to me. Until we get to this point and I wake up in the morning and have a CNN breaking news alert on my phone that Kamala Harris has come out for Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren is still resting on her fucking laurels going on SNL. And that was it. Like this morning, it just broke me. I woke up fucking furious and I have been really not a treat to be around for the last few days. And I apologize to the one person who's had to talk to me, which is David. Hi. Yeah. Um, Every move you make. (laughs) Every step you take, I won't be voting for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's so, do you think she's going to get primaried now? I mean, like, I can imagine a scenario where in Bernie Sanders does actually win the nomination and the presidency, and you know, come primary season, somebody's going to be like, "Oh, you know who did loudly support uh, Bernie Sanders like from the jump, and especially before Super Tuesday." Me. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. I, I do think she'll, she might like lose a general election to a Republican. She came in yeah. third in her own state in Massachusetts. Like, that's no good. I would not be <clears throat> at all surprised if Liz Warren, in some way, either by being primaried or just losing to a Republican, uh, loses her Senate seat the next time she's up for re election. You know, it's, uh, I, I, you know, th- there are people that, um, it's pretty common to hear. You know, oh, Bernie bros, they they liked Elizabeth Warren and said, ooh, why don't you run in 2016? But voted for someone like Warren, but not Hillary Clinton. Well, it turns out you actually just don't want to vote for a woman. And uh, because here she is running in 2020 and none of you will vote for her. And, you know, like, yeah, we've learned a lot about her. And it hasn't been a lot of good stuff. The more people learned about her, the less they supported her. Yeah. If it was just about sexism, she never would have been at the top of the pack in October. I'm not saying that there was no misogyny against Warren. I Because of course there could be. Of course there is. Yeah, in a misogynistic country, it's like, yeah, there's going to be an incredibly a, a high amount of that. Yeah, we live under patriarchal white supremacist capitalism. Like, yes, of course she's going to have some disadvantages, many disadvantages. Um, but if it was purely misogyny, she wouldn't have been at the at the top of the field in October. What fucked her was people learning about her. And her pivoting on the progressive policies that put her at the top of the pack in the very beginning. And us learning about how fucking deceitful she was and how, like, underhand, like underhanded. And, you know, I, I saw 
Warren stands, former Warren stands on Twitter saying that like they supported her until she accused Bernie Sanders of misogyny. Like that was actually a breaking point for real life people who supported her before that. So, yeah, I mean, she has nobody to blame but herself and her supporters. Honestly, like I have really avoided this kind of discourse because I feel like the more effective way to bring people into a movement is through like solidarity building and kindness and empathy and like and my heart goes out to people who are brokenhearted about warren but you know what i'm gonna pull a chapo and say it's time to fucking bend the knee motherfuckers if you supported warren and you are even and obviously nobody listening to this podcast is but anybody who supported warren and is even thinking about supporting joe biden or voting for him you must now admit that the only fucks you gave about her was her brand. And you did not care about anything that she stood for. And you don't give a shit about progressivism progressivism in general. So just sit with that. Just sit with that. If you know a person who is a former Warren supporter who is even thinking about Biden, you now know a very important thing about that person, which is this, to them, their politics is aesthetics, not policy, not who can be helped, who can be saved. This planet is on fucking fire. And if we have Trump or Biden for the next four years, that's it, folks. It's game over. Yeah, I've, I've had so many really depressing observations or conversations with people around electoralism uh, recently. Like I read uh, a Facebook post that Emily showed me from a friend of mine uh, who's just, you know, you know, apolitical, doesn't really pay much attention, I guess, watching the news or, you know, focusing on the races or anything. And, uh, she was a millennial, like, uh, 30-ish, uh, and voted for, uh, Biden and explained that it was like purely aesthetic and it was purely based on an assumption that he was going to be the nominee anyway. So for whatever reason, in a primary, you have to support the nominee. Which is a baffling logic <laughs> yeah, to me. Yeah, it, but... it is. And then the, the second thing she said was, uh, that she just didn't like to be yelled at and, you know, Bernie reminded her of like angry old men that she didn't like but biden reminded her of like you know sweet like kind old man that men that she liked and i was just like well that's her truth <laughs> like you know like you know well no offense to your friend but that person's an idiot i'm sorry you're <laughs> but the point the point i guess i'm trying to say is like her vote is as legally functionally powerful and valid as anyone else's. And she is an admittedly low information voter. And she like, you know, is just like, well, you know, I did the right thing and I voted, you know, my, my, my gut <laughs> or whatever. And it's, it's wild, but I think that that level of uh, relationship to our civics is like incredibly common and like, mm -hmm. yeah, really like, hard for me to wrap my mind around because i have the sickness i have the thing that makes me you know pay attention to the state of the world with like a level that is probably unhealthy I, yeah. I've, I've never really liked the message of just to vote you know like, you know, like <laughs> vote or go, die yeah yeah the the whole movement to just like get engaged it doesn't matter who you vote for just vote and like the the psas of voting in general the generic <laughs> Uh, literally it doesn't but, matter what you who yeah you are yeah I, <laughs> we, uh, we've built it that way i i do kind of wish there was more like i understand that sometimes those vote get out the vote campaigns are there because they are from a nonpartisan group and they have to be they have to say just vote uh and it's and it makes sense to like say that to specific groups of people and then like that could be effective yeah like the people who are going to watch like matlock 
<laughs> right yeah but you know but in general like i i feel like it just gets people like that usually that sort of message gets people who are like well i voted and that's an unalloyed good you know i actually so. think that a lot of that discourse comes from democrats because they know that they benefit from high voter turnout and frankly a lot of low information voters who just show up and vote dem party line yeah. and i think that they have historically benefited from that a great deal mm. and what that's led to is giving the democratic like party elite like the 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 democratic party establishment um just like like carte blanche to put in who to install whoever they want in power because so much of their political message is just vote and the people that appeals to are people who if they just vote are likely to vote whoever the fucking democrats like serve up on a platter to yeah them. yeah 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 we're the good guys if, if they have a d next to their name they have the right values it, which is so such a powerful message or at least an effective message that you can have shit like pro-choice democrats which is like i don't which i yeah, or or progressives that you know, or sorry, pro life Democrats. I meant pro life Democrats. Yeah, or progressives that support a mayor covering up for a police murder. Yeah, right. Yeah, you just have like things that are so so strange. I don't know. Maybe that's a that's an effect of the Northeast, where it's effectively a one party system. Oh, I have a Noam Chomsky quote that I like can can sort of recall from memory, which is uh, in America there is really only one party, the business party. It has uh, two wings: the Democrats and the Republicans which, although aren't identical, support largely the same group of policies. Um, I have, uh, in general, see myself in opposition to those policies, as does the majority of the population. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that is absolutely true. Yeah. In their, um, in their book, Manufacturing Consent, Chomsky and Herman lay out this argument that essentially says the, the, the purpose of the media and the sort of corporate elite and the party elite for both the Democrats and Republicans serve the function of creating a particular window of discourse. And you can have really robust like argumentation and like lots of different political views within that specific window. But anything outside of that window is sort of painted as like nutty or or evil or authoritarian or whatever, you know, kind of like shit that you want to spew at things that fall out of that kind of official discourse. And so what the, the purpose that that serves, the reason that the elites need something like MSNBC and Fox News in the same media environment is because you have to give the illusion of distinction. But it is distinction without a difference when it comes to, like, yeah. you know, the whole of our complex, like, social life and political life. And for people who are confused about, like, well, yeah, but there is a party that, like, cares about gay rights and about uh, abortion access and stuff like that. It was like that is ostensibly true but look at how quickly they'll throw all of those issues under the bus if now late to the game they, they came they to care those about issues. them when it's politically convenient yeah, for yeah. Them. yeah. that's like, when they care when it provides them a competitive advantage in a district or something they might go for it but joe but biden in 2012 that, didn't yeah, support gay marriage yeah like and neither did barack so obama openly. yeah yeah <laughs> and, and and yeah i mean in his first term yeah like yeah it's it, it it's really wild so the thing about um oh there we go all right done bad Yay. news folks <laughs> <laughs> the alarm has spoken. Record scratch. Bye bye. Bye bye. So we did that because we really don't want to spend a ton of time on electoral politics. We have a lot of really a lot of other very important things to get to. And so, um, fuck you, Liz Warren, and fuck you, Joe Biden, and You're bitches, lose. bitches, give your money and your time and your energy uh, to 
Bernie Sanders, you're going to be listening to this Monday night. We're going to find out what happens on Tuesday. Tuesday's do or die. If you happen to be living, or if you happen to be listening to this and live in one of those states, go fucking vote and bring 10 fucking people with you. All right. That's all. But quick shout out to everybody that tuned in to our Twitch stream on Tuesday. That was a lot of fun for us all to do. And uh, it was super fun. We'll do it again. Yeah, we were pleasantly surprised by how many people actually watched us get drunk on a couch and yell at the television. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it a, awesome. it's a whole genre of, of media now. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah. Is, uh, watch some people get angry yeah. at a television. Yeah, reality TV was not real enough. No, we, no. We, we need... This is know, hyper-real TV. Yeah, we need like... Hyper-real television. It, it, it's like... But reality TV is hyper-real. This is, this is authentic real. Okay. <laughs> so we might, do, we might do it again sometime in the future. Yeah, it was fun. That yeah. now we we have the technological um, hurdle under our belt. I think that, that was really the biggest. Yeah, figuring out how to get yeah. all that stuff going. So I got in a really dumb internet argument the other day with somebody on a Reddit thread, but I think it illustrated a basic uh, misunderstanding about the phenomena of gentrification. Uh, which is essentially, I'll, for the purposes of this discussion, I'll define as uh, the displacement of people uh, based on um, a side effect or direct purpose of class war. And so I see what's going on in Troy. I've lived here now for about 15 years. And the entire time I've lived here, people have been raising the specter of gentrification, being like, oh shit, it's gentrifying, this sucks, like what can we do to stop this? And obviously it seems to me that Rent control is like the thing you do to stop that because you can actually stop displacement that way. But in short of being able to pull that off, uh, despite having lots of progressives on the city council, we just are forced to see whether it's going to happen or not. And I've always been on the fence as to whether it would happen or how fast it would happen because of the glut of housing, especially like abandoned properties that can be purchased for next to nothing on the auction list here in Troy, which is like a really sweet deal. For anybody who lives in the area. But the thing that's happening is a phenomena that I didn't really uh, see in action until the past couple of years, uh, which is the process by which really rich developers are able to make sweetheart deals with local uh, city administration to get out of uh, the high amount of operating costs from tax burden in the first 10, 15 years and building a glut of housing that favors the top 5% of the market in terms of price point, and uh, thus functionally raise the median rent for an area instantly by like several hundreds of dollars because of just suddenly there's a ton of expensive housing, rental housing on the market. And the knock-on effect of having the median rent in your area that you're, you as a landlord are renting in is that you are incentivized, if you can get away with it, to raise your rents to be in uh, competition, quote unquote, with the median rent or the average rent around you. And so all of the landlords, all of the rentiers in the area are incentivized to do the same thing, which is, if you can, try to get rents that are market value. So market value is based on you know supply and demand, but somebody who doesn't have to pay a ton of operating costs for the first 15 years of their building operation can afford to sit on vacant housing units for several years. And so the now effect is that all the landlords that were previously renting at, say, 
$700 are now renting at $900, right. you know, even six months in. And if you can evict somebody for whatever reason, just or unjust, and you can change the rent after you've evicted them, then you, why wouldn't you do that? And you could even make the argument that as a quote unquote good landlord, it's your responsibility not to be like driven, you know, out of the market or blah, 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 blah. And that landlords aren't incentivized to have competition where they lower the, the price of um, the units because so many of them can afford to just sit on the property empty until the entire market has forced all of the renters to comply with a higher price that has now been, you know, completely for no reason at all, other than a bunch of really powerful, rich land developers uh, came into an area, actually increased the cost or, or reason for it being so expensive. The, what, the effect Chris is describing is called the rent gap. Uh, the geographer Neil Smith describes as as the rent gap. And what that does is, uh, because to some degree, right, land runs on supply and demand curves like you learned in, you know, Econ 101 kind of thing, right? But it's also true that land acts very differently than most other commodities because you can't build more of it. You can't, you largely cannot increase the supply of land unless you're Dubai, right? And you make an, an island chain that looks like a palm tree or something, right? Or China with the, um, yeah. the military bases in the South China Sea. Right. Yeah. You can do stuff like that. But even there, Right, you can also privatize federal lands and mm -hmm. yeah, but but the, the the problem though is that like you can't build more land at a specific place where there is demand. Right, right. Yeah, you can you, only build up. Yeah, you can build up, but even then, you still increase the price when you do that because now you've actually you've effectively increased the value of that land because everything around it has said that it is now valuable. Right, so every time you try to increase supply, you're also increasing demand. Because now it's a new hot place, right? Now, now there's towers going up and people start speculating on that, that space. And so uh, what Neil Smith says is that you never get gentrification in like middle class neighborhoods that gradually sneak up to expensive neighborhoods. You always get gentrification in poor neighborhoods. And that is because this thing that he's identified called the rent gap where developers are incentivized, landlords, whatever, to find the biggest delta the biggest difference between a starting price and an end price in a process right so you go and look for places that are super super run down cheap land maybe you are a developer and, and you purposefully like you were saying chris like not update the building you know neglect a bunch of spaces buy up it so that you can buy up more places even cheaper right mm -hmm. because now the is a, this neighborhood's trash right so you just buy up more and more and more and, if, and then eventually you've consolidated like say a whole block and then because everything is so crap, you go to the city and you say, ah, oh, this, this land is blighted, you know, or, or you know, run, too run down. I own it as a good citizen of this fair city. You know, I want to redevelop this, right? So I, I want to throw everyone out, demolish the whole block because it's beyond repair and build something brand new and revitalize this neighborhood. Yeah. And, and, th and that... And then you can build a new thing and then sell that. And of course, the only way to recoup the cost of demolishing and rebuilding is to rent luxury apartments, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and so because that's the only thing that that gets the right well, return on investment. Well, yeah. Well, so see, and, yeah. and so that, that and then you get stuff like Insight, right, with the yeah. thing that they're building uh, yeah. on King Street around the beer garden in Troy. I mean, I want to point out that what you just said about the incentive being to uh, to push people to do this, it absolutely is. Yeah. As far as like their ability to get away from, uh, get away with this, but I want to point out that there is totally. The ability for us to build low-income, affordable housing that is durable and of high quality of and serves everybody. Yeah. Like, so shout out to Dick Sleeper uh, for letting me know about this. Uh, Dick's a really good guy. I uh, volunteer with him down at um, the Sanctuary for Independent Media for the Hudson Mohawk uh, Magazine radio program and podcast. Uh, and he was telling me about how the people behind this insight, which used to be called king's landing i think we talked about this on a previous pod we did yeah yeah it, it, it was really really odd for a bunch of reasons because they named it king's landing before the last season finished in game of thrones so anybody who's seen that series sort of knows what happens to king's why that's landing. not a good idea to name your housing development after king's landing <laughs> and all, you don't want to give away that you're eventually going to make a bunch of money by burning the place down and collecting well, the spoil- insurance money you cannot spoil <laughs> i can't spoil game of thrones or the future of this uh, doomed housing project all right I everyone knows so all right. Anybody that uh, doesn't live in Troy uh, might find this funny. Um, and everybody that know- lives in Troy has seen this happen. But there's a bar restaurant downtown Troy called uh, the Beer Garden that like serves import uh, European beers and stuff. And they have become completely subsumed, like literally built around on all sides and on top of. Like they built a giant housing complex that has like a rectangular corner that just sort of comes out like a, a second roof onto this pre-existing restaurant and just builds up on top of that like several more stories uh so it's a goofy looking building in the first place but this place uh, was called king's landing for a while and there was a big billboard next to it that was uh paid for by like the Schoharie County, like Republican uh, caucus or something that uh, was talking about welfare fraud, uh, game of uh, game like, of welfare fraud. It didn't even make yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, other, it was like, and there was like a dragon. Yeah, there was and, a dragon burning yeah. down this castle right next to this gigantic building complex that just says King's Landing in huge letters next to it. It was very odd uh, juxtaposition Jesus of Christ. some bad taste uh, branding. But anyway, um, they are are uh, allegedly in the process of purchasing up and demolishing an entire uh, little block behind uh, the housing that they're uh, putting up right now, doing exactly what you just said, uh, David. Yeah, I I mean, we should also keep track of uh, all the land around the Headley building. Uh, I believe it's First Columbia that's buying up pretty much everything around like Hudson or uh, Hutton Street and River, like all around there. It's one developer buying up lots and lots of property they're they're moving to do a very similar thing around there you can you you can sort of watch this happen uh in real time but one of the the most powerful tools that cities and their uh, developer friends have made to to kind of grease the skids to make this happen is called a payment in lieu of taxes or pilot the pilot acronym uh agreements and pilot agreements allow a city to slowly step up the property taxes of a plot of land, right? So you, usually the way this works by default is a developer might build a new building 
and then uh, a city assesses the the property and they're like oh okay there's a new building here so now that property is worth a lot more than it was before uh so now your taxes are let's say it went from fifty dollars for a vacant lot or a rundown building to five hundred dollars right you know 10 10x increase that, that's of course very unrealistic numbers but you know it's easy math right so instead of instantly raising the price of land what you'll do is say okay for the first five years or 10 years we'll keep property taxes at the same rate that they would have been if uh this was still you know a vacant lot or you know whatever, however you found it and that and you can just pay us maybe a lump sum at the beginning you know throw us 10k something like that or uh and we'll just like slowly step up uh the price over time so that you can recoup costs of building and you know by the time we reach full property tax assessment uh you'll be making a decent amount of money now in that time what will often happen is that the developer will have flipped the property to a management company or they'll have raised their rents the rest of the region will have already come up and and it's it's about that time that all these replacement costs are starting to come in because now there's tons more people, you know, shitting and going and yeah, the toilets into are the toilets out. and and using water and electricity and all this stuff. And and you know, the city doesn't have any money to fix all those things because they gave it all away uh, in order to, to you know build these um, these new buildings. So it's a it it's why your city like never seems to have enough money to do anything is because uh, they incentivize short-term gains at the expense of like long-term stability uh, of, of maintenance costs which david is currently writing a book about yeah yeah, yeah. So, trying to yeah trying to yeah so you know the whole like you get what you measure in terms of performance goals like whatever you measure is what you value and therefore like if you're going to imp- make improvements it, based on the metrics that you measure and value you're going to make those improvements based on that we should have as for local politics metrics of how many sweetheart deals they've made with like rich developers or like how much tax breaks they've made with people for various reasons because i wonder about the sticks and carrots that exist to get the people who shouldn't be selling out both the near-term and long-term value of of the city to some degree we have that it's called your credit score like the city has a credit score and it goes up when they keep doing that and allows them to get more credit to keep doing it if they uh, spend too much money on public housing and supporting the poor, their credit score goes down because they're doing too much deficit spending and they're not amenable to the tax breaks that give rich developers what they want. And then capital like you know, holds everything that we need hostage until they start acting the way that they want. So the thing that I guess I, I, I may have failed to bring to clarity that I wanted to give another shot at earlier was that... The rich don't need to make money on every single dollar that they have, and they can invest it in housing stock that sits largely idle or unfilled as a mechanism to improve the property values of all of their uh, assets in the long term. And the pilots are a system to make it even easier and more incentivized to do just that. Yeah, if you zoom out a little bit more, you'll actually see why everyone is acting the way that they do because you should really just think of a developer as a very specific kind of investor right they're just a big pile of money and they want to make that money do work for them and grow and if they're not going to make usually it's like between like nine and twelve percent off of their initial investment 
they're not going to build anything. They're going to go uh, invest it in like uh, market accounts. You know, like they'll just invest it in like a NASDAQ composite or something like that. They, there's no reason to build anything if it doesn't return more money than uh, like the stock market would. Yeah. Yeah. Or some blue chip stock. Yeah. So, so cities have to make it so that they will make more money than that, which invariably means that they're either building luxury stuff, right? You know, is that, that gets a big, bigger return on investment or they uh, get lots of, they being the developer gets a lot of tax breaks and grants from all levels of government, federal, state, local, right? So that stuff like a affor- uh, quote unquote affordable housing programs like eventually the math works out and they make money that way too that's the only way anything ever gets built in a, in a market economy and so yeah anybody who doesn't live in troy about a dozen of these things are happening everything from old factory buildings being renovated into luxury lofts there's like six of those along the river that are happening there's i think like six buildings going up in the starbuck island which was just like a complete derelict like it was like a car wash in an all-state yeah office. yeah like, and, and just all this like dumped luxury like broken down building debris for a very long time they excavated all that now they built these huge fucking condos and there's also like a half dozen that i pass on my way to work along the uh the coho side of the river just you know so i guess what i'm saying is like it's bizarre to me initially uh, why a glut of luxury housing was built in a space that already had a glut of housing without any new industry coming, without any jobs to be able to pay people high salaries to be able to afford these types of housing units. But as you're pointing out, it's just like, that's what makes sense for the builder. So it's built. Yeah. You know, no, no assessment as to what the community needs. Yeah, the logic or, follows the needs of capital and not the needs of the community, which is. Yeah. And and even if you, like, it really doesn't matter if you live in Troy, I guarantee wherever you live, unless you're fucking, like, Ted Kaczynskiing it out in the middle of nowhere, this is happening near you. Like, this is where I grew up and well, where I spent a great deal of my, my misspent youth in Temple Terrace. There was a That's very similar... Tampa. Which is, which is uh, well, it's in Tampa. It's a neighborhood in Tampa. But it was high, being highly gentrified during the time that I lived there and, and continues to this day. But there was this one major project that the city worked hand in hand with developers to do and the city ended up losing a shit ton of money on it which was to knock down this massive like in so like in florida it's everything is strip malls like we have strip malls up here i'm sure that wherever you live you have strip malls but in florida that's like all we have like that's 90 percent of the state is strip malls and they play this like game of i don't need like checkers or something where they just are constantly like building strip malls, tearing them down, rebuilding new strip malls that look slightly better according to whatever aesthetic is popular at the time. Yeah, yeah. It's usually new called, classical. <laughs> it's usually called a leapfrog development. Oh, okay. So checkers wasn't the worst yeah. analogy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, and, you know, like the old one was sort of like a grayish color and the new one is beige and has a different pattern of stucco, but ultimately it's like the exact same type of building and there was nothing really wrong with the old one except that it was a different kind of ugly and it's still going to have like, you know, a rainbow clothing store and, you know, like a, a big lots. And- yeah. And a big lots and like all of the shit. And, and like the only purpose behind it is just to make some developer money and cause the city to lose money. And now in a lot of those instances, those strip malls are sitting empty because when they rebuilt the new strip mall, 
a lot of the old places like the Rainbow Clothing Store, like the Dollar General, now couldn't afford the rents for the space. So what used to be like a fairly densely populated strip mall, like like retail center, is now half empty. And malls have been doing the exact same thing, doing these massive refurbishment pro- projects in malls that are going empty, that are that are like not fucking crossgates. They've been retiling the whole fucking thing for how many years now? Like six years. And meanwhile, it's it's becoming empty. So this is, I think, part of a much it's not necessarily like we're using, you know, Troy as sort of the microcosm to talk about it. But it's something that's happening everywhere yeah 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 Yeah. across the river in Cohoes is a really good example of what you're describing Brittany. where it's like it's a city of like fifteen thousand people it's and i say city only because it's very dense in the downtown but Cohoes proper like the actual border of the city goes pretty far west all the way out Mm -hmm. to nine Mm -hmm. and the reason why like Cohoes the downtown you know like only sometimes you know it's only recently been getting like, like some Remsen love on street, Remsen street yeah. yeah is because Cohoes has had a very common problem where a city needs development of some kind and they build suburban development in that case out west and you think about just like the actual physical layout of that sort of building construction right you run out the same sewer lines the same water pipes electricity all that and you are actually serving fewer people per mile of pipe because it's less dense, right? right. And, and the, the density is, becomes less, less, and less. And roads also is especially important, right? Yeah, your, so your, operating costs go yeah, way up. Operating costs go way up per, uh, per capita, right? Mm-hmm. Like per person, you're actually spending way, 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 way more money as a city to service actually fewer people and more cars. Mm. And so all of your money goes out to, you know, initially as a city, you get a little bit money in because you're building new stuff and all the all the fines and fees and taxes that come in mm-hmm. uh, when you build something new. But that eventually goes away. And now you have to service everything. And it costs money to service everything. And you're not spending money on rebuilding stuff downtown. And so the downtown starts crumbling because you're throwing good money after bad or bad money after good, whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, out. Baby out with the bathwater, yeah, yeah. throwing in spaghetti against the wall. <laughs> See, <laughs> See what sticks. All the metaphors go, go, go out into the suburbs. Straight down the toilet. Yeah. yeah it's, it's sometimes literally straight down the toilet. Yeah, yeah. that's why I said that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's, um, that's why your city never seems to have any money is because it's like desperately in the short term building stuff to get in some revenue and then they don't factor in replacement cost, which you should have enough money on hand as a city to replace all of your infrastructure every for every 20 years. Yeah. So, it, you know, and no one can ever do that. Chalk up another reason why uh, profit motive is a bad incentive for social uh, long term well-being and uh, investment. You know, just one more reason. Yeah, And it proves the lie of like this conservative talking point that, you know, business people who have business acumen are good at being, say, the president or your senator or your governor or whoever the fuck like governments okay first of all like nothing should be run like a business because we shouldn't have capitalism but like cities especially and states and governments cannot be run like businesses because the purpose of a business in a capitalist economy is to accrue profit for the people who own that business and the capital of that business and that's not how cities function cities function or at least they states, shouldn't well yeah but no even even when they even when we want them to function that yeah. way even when you have a leadership that wants it to function that way it is 
you know, it's short term goals for at the expense of like long term, mm. you know, stability. And so it's not a good model for the purpose of governing, which is to manage incredibly complex systems that support the well-being of the people it's responsible for governing. Like, Usually when people grumble, oh, the government should be run like a business. They have just experienced something that is the direct result of government acting like a business. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> like, like, why don't they invest in infrastructure? And, and it's it was like, yeah, Why because... have my property taxes gone up? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, because it, it's because of capital. Like, a, a really, like, good example of a business acting just like this was Target, who was failing, right? They were, they were getting their ass beaten by Amazon and Walmart, and what Target did was invest a shit ton of money into their stores. And their stock went down because all the capitalists were like, you don't spend money on infrastructure. You don't spend money on physical plant. It's just too much up front. But uh, this one, I don't know the CEO's name. I, I try not to remember CEO's names, but they, you know, they did it anyway. And just now they're actually turning around. Like they've been doing really good. They beat all of these expectations. But that is the logic of of capitalists is to not spend money on infrastructure even though when you do it's usually beneficial for everyone are you guys familiar with the concept of nimbyism yes. not in my backyard yeah exactly so this is the idea that um you know that's how i feel when trees fall I, I look at a tree that's fallen and I'm like, not in my backyard. Is that, that's what NIMBYism yeah. is, right? Squir yeah, yeah. Squirrels at my bird feeder. Uh, yeah, two yeah. cats were fucking last night. Uh, well, I should say because of the nature of cat sex, one cat was being raped in my backyard. And I heard it. And because the sounds, if you ever heard the sound of cats having sex, it's yeah. like very disturbing. And I have four cats. So when I hear like those kinds of growls, I'm like, oh God, what's happening? Yeah, And I go outside, and these cats, they are committing a uh, fornication in my backyard. <laughs> so nimbyism is when you chase off cats <laughs> that are doing it in your backyard, right? Yeah. I'm helping, it, right? No, no, this that, is helpful. No, it's very helpful. That, that, that's one form. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the form of nimbyism that um, uh, can uh, actually bring about, I think, a good uh, thing is when uh, there's a plant that is burning a toxic forever chemical literally in your backyard uh which is uh happening to us because just over um the river in Cohoes, there's a place that called the norlite plant and they uh do shale mining to i think like build building materials i think it's like gypsum or something mm. but they have an incinerator on site and they are under government contract with the department of defense to incinerate as a form of disposal millions of gallons of this firefighting foam that has like PFOA and POFOS and like more a, like POS. Yeah. <laughs> all these like <laughs> these these chemicals that like I don't know the specifics of how they're bad, but they're bad. They're okay. Bad. I think the PFOA they're stuff bad, is folks. a they're byproduct bad. Good. often of uh, Teflon manufacture because I remember that was a big thing up in Balsam Spa, I believe. Um, uh, or, Hoosick or, Falls was having yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, sorry. It was Hoosick Falls um, that had water contamination due yeah, to... Yeah, that was a huge problem Yeah, Hoosick Falls. Yeah. So those chemicals are part of this uh, firefighting foam, which is like a film reduction foam that's supposed to, you know, help stop fires and i believe this is the stuff that they like will dump on like forest fires with airplanes and so we're stuff. fighting fires with 
cancer-causing chemicals? I believe so, Who yeah. Who the fuck's idea was that? Uh, I guess... Like, it, I've heard you can't fight pos- fire with fire, <laughs> but I guess you can fight fire with cancer, so... Yeah. Or maybe this is just for specialized defense department foams, because they're the ones who have it. So this is, like, the Army, Ma- Navy, Marines, and, and other people, but they have, like, this stuff by the millions of gallons, and they've... Army um, foam! Yeah, been under contract in eight different states, and they're being uh, sued by the Sierra Club, as well as um, the, you know, constituencies of many of these states to basically stop doing this. And what's even stranger about this whole thing is there's actually been an EPA person on site of the Norlite facility for like the last year while they've been burning these like banned, you know, materials. So we'll see how that shakes out. I'll report on it later because we're covering it at um, WOC. Uh, and I know our 15 minutes is long expired, but I do just want to say like the gutting of the EPA under the Trump administration. I mean, not that it was a super... Not that it was the world's most effective regulatory agency to begin with, but like it being gutted, like we desperately need the next person in the White House to prioritize like environmental concerns. And that doesn't just mean fighting global warming. It means fighting water contamination and the burning of can- of carcinogenic chemicals over because like who's going to be affected by that most? It's going to be like the poor people. It's not going to be the people in East Side who are living where we are or full of suburban People like that, those carcinogenic chemicals are most going to affect places like, you know, Cohoes. North Troy and Cohoes. And and so that's why it's so important that like we get it, it not even just a not just like the president, but in the House, in the Senate and in like city at council. all and in city council and like at all levels of government, like people who take that shit seriously. And Joe Biden does not. So just so you know, that is not a priority for moderate Democrats. Moderate Democrats are not interested in environmental regulation. They're interested in pro-business what agendas. An, what an unholy amount of power the for president real. of the United States. We need to really abolish this hard. fucking position. Just get rid of it. It's so bad. It's so bad. Like We it, just need to make Bernie king. And his <laughs> final order as king of America is to get rid of the executive branch. It's so bad. Can you imagine just the, the long-term species level concerns about like the health of our land and water and one of the first things donald trump was able to do is by executive order be like oh yeah the whole defending our waters act that obama passed that's some liberal pussy bullshit spill whatever you want in our waters i don't give a fuck and like that's law like what the fuck and you can and he can do a million other tiny things like refuse to fill uh vacant like positions that are appointed positions yeah he um uprooted a whole bunch of i think they were epa employees and said oh we're gonna move all of you from dc to oklahoma now and if you don't want to go then you're fired and how many people are going to uproot their entire lives and their families and everything to move to fucking oklahoma nothing against oklahoma but like you know it's it's all those little teeny tiny things that they do too. removing really critical information from like the epa's website which they did fucking day one from the trump administration removing data on global warming and and like uh, you know all of the effects of corporate practices just like yeah no that the public doesn't need to know about that shit anymore so it's a million things that like the president is responsible for that is so substantively degrading for the, especially the most vulnerable members of our of our of our society. Yeah, and a lot you know, of, who suffers the poor, yeah, black yeah. communities, like people who R- are who we don't have to care about. Remember when Donald Trump banned trans people from the military via tweet? Yeah, I'm like, 
A Tuesday? With no warning to the, like, I mean, not like I'm so concerned about the generals being on the same page, but like no warning to like, anybody. Yeah, the Pentagon was like, what the fuck are you talking about? No, we don't have plans to do that. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's and not thanks good, Obama. folks. The presidency, not good. And thanks to Obama for allowing all of those executive powers that were expanded under Bush to just continue on business as usual. And with no concern for the fact that the next guy would have all of those expanded powers as well. Yeah. One, I think one of Obama's biggest responsibilities as president that he utterly failed at was rolling back the expansion of the executive office. Oh, yeah. That he, occurred under Reagan, under Bush, under, you know, like that. He made it even bigger. He, he made it even yeah. bigger. Yeah. yeah. He, he straight up admitted to extrajudicially murdering two American civilians, one of which was a 16-year-old boy, Abdurrahman al-Awlaki who was Denver-born, except for the sins of his father, never associated with any crime whatsoever. Yeah. And he was killed, plus like 30 others, in a uh, cafe bombing by drone that had no other significant targets uh, associated and, with it. And this expansion of powers makes every presidential election more and more consequential at the same time that it is being decided in less and less democratic ways. It is no longer a require. like it's never been a requirement, but it is increasingly not a requirement to get even a, a third of the American public to support you to become president, yeah. right? Like, it, it's just, it's a, a, an incredibly dangerous path that we are on with the power of the executive to determine whether or not we have clean water and clean air. It's ter- it's it's absolutely terrifying. And I don't even know... I don't know that anything staunches that bleeding. What's really disturbing is how many people who are at least ostensibly on the left call themselves leftists, like, seem to at least implicitly, if not explicitly, say that the problem is that we don't have smart enough people running for president. Or or our millionaires just need a moral, like, thrust in the right direction. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's like, do you really think all of these problems come down to the fact that our constitutional law president wasn't smart enough to tackle these problems? Which I I guess I'm, like, kind of, like, subtweeting Elizabeth Warren right here. But, you know, it's like, it's not about how smart... You can't subtweet on a podcast. (laughs) We're not tweeting. (laughs) But, like, like, it's not about how smart you are, right? You know, it's... Barack Obama was probably the smartest president of the 20th century. Or, I guess he was a 21st century president. Yeah. Probably the smartest president of the last hundred years. But that, yeah, Yeah, like, that doesn't matter, right? It's about, like, how you build power, where that power comes from. Like, that's, that's what matters. And it's about motivation. Yeah. Like, that's, I think, uh, like, who are you supporting who are you who are you representing and obviously trump was not elected to represent people in poor communities who are getting polluted all over all right so new plan we got to get bernie sanders to be the president get medicare for all passed green new deal passed and then the end of year four abolish the presidency and (laughs) drop the mic presidential pardon for every incarcerated human being in the country uh, open up the borders and destroy the office of the president yeah. and institute a parliamentary system and actually break the United States up into like five regions so that we don't have to have our fucking blue state money siphoned off into states where they are outlawing abortion and executing people for crimes that there is not even sufficient evidence to demonstrate that they committed, which just happened in, I think, Alabama. Anyway, I, also that's, give, that's Palestine, my real- uh, give Palestine a nuke. And give Palestine, uh, like, at least 20 nukes. These are some hot, hot, hot takes today on Ironweeds. I have pooped on the Resolute desk. Good luck using it again. No more presidency. Yeah. 
And I should say what I just said about breaking up the United States into regions is actually quite controversial among leftists because a lot of red states do rely on funding that gets siphoned from blue states into red states to support the poorest people who live there. But I do also think it's a major problem that we have like such incredibly culturally distinct regions and we are still trying to govern them as if they are part of a culturally and socially like cohesive entity. And we're not. And we have to deal with that. And we have these fucking places that are so incredibly conservative that they don't represent, they represent less than 5% of the population. And yet they have 40, 50% representation in federal government. It's absurd. Like that's not a sustainable system. So because I'm so hermited, because really the only places I go are like here and occasionally to the grocery store, I went out the other day for the first time since kind of the coronavirus became like a more something that I am more concerned about than I was previously. And it was like really a little bit scary to be in public, which I feel kind of embarrassed to even say, because I think that's like not a good way to deal with these sorts of like medical emergencies but, but it's definitely just, here well like, and so i was going to the optometrist yeah. which means that like my face but they're putting my face against a whole bunch of surfaces mm-hmm. and you know they do like the alcohol swab and stuff but i don't there was just like this little part of my brain that was like insufficient like you how many people's faces have been on this today um anyway my eyes are all fucked up and then i went to the grocery store And I'm like, okay, so this is the first time ever that I'll use the wipes on the cart. And like, I will not touch my face and blah, blah, blah. And I'm being really careful. And I'm in the fucking cereal aisle. And this old motherfucking white guy is about to pass me with his cart, right? Like we are going in opposite lanes. And just as his face is about a foot away from my face, he coughs open into the air and my mouth is open and I feel his cough go into my mouth. Oh no. And like, I'm going to grow, like there's nothing. What do you do? Like, I just had to kind of like, I was so stunned that I couldn't even say anything to him, which I spent the rest of the day (laughs) kicking myself for. Like, why didn't you say, hey, you fucking idiot, cough into your shirt, cough into your elbow like a grown up. We teach five year olds to not cough. We teach three year olds not to cough into the open air. Two year olds. Two year olds. Yeah. yeah, I I, I mean, now I think I think we're we're, we're just doing suckling at their mother's breast. We teach them not to cough. No, we don't. Actually, we can't. You can't teach infants. (laughs) Because they're so dumb. Um, <laughs> fucking stupid babies. Yeah, that's literal anyway, violence. Yeah. It was so disgusting. And I could and like, I have never in my life experienced a person coughing into my mouth, uh, except for once a very young child. And so it just happened to be on the first day that I leave my house since the corona, coronavirus has spread. Yeah. And uh, so I get home and I unload the groceries and I uh, open up my Twitter and discover that coronavirus has come to upstate New York. Yay, so, hooray, hooray. We're part of it. Uh, it's in Queensbury and Saratoga. Saratoga right? or Boston, Boston Spa? Sir, I saw Saratoga. Saratoga. I think it might also be in Boston Spa. Okay, yeah. that's closer. Cool. So, yeah. All right. Um, I don't know. Like, this is probably really fucked up to say, so I'm going to call it parody. Um, but, you know, maybe Biden will lose a little bit of the boomer boat if uh, coronavirus continues to spread. Only because they won't show up to vote. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Not that I want them all to die. I 
I definitely don't mean that, obviously. We, yeah, I mean, we had mentioned this a little bit in, I think, last week's bonus, but just one of the startling things about this uh, virus is just, like, how high the mortality rate is for the elderly. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's like 50%. It's, it's very like, upsetting. It's basically like a decence if you if you get it, like, or at least a, a pretty good chance of it. Um, at, oh, above 70, I believe. Um, but yeah. Overall, well, and they, overall, it's less than 4%, though. But they keep, keep that in mind. But they keep, they keep mind, well, reducing that age. Like it used to be eighty, and now it's seventy, and now it's sixty, and now yeah. I think last I saw is like people fifty and under should try to quarantine themselves as much as possible. Yeah, or but, fifteen and over. But the children who are typically very uh, vulnerable to sicknesses because of the fact that they have a developing immune system, weirdly are better at developing an immunity or have some type of immunity. Because that they, was originally thought, but now epidemiologists are saying no. It is oh, actually really? children are very. So here's the here's one of the scarier things about coronavirus is that everything that we know about it is changing all the time. Like it was originally assumed that it couldn't live outside of the body for more than a few hours. And now epidemiologists are saying it can live up to two weeks on oh, surfaces shit. outside of the body. <laughs> we're originally, they were saying that children were very resilient to the disease. And now they're saying that they're incredibly vulnerable. <sighs> um, originally, it was that only the very elderly were were super vulnerable. Now they're saying it's anybody over the age of like 55. So it's like... So we're good. The, oh, and yeah. originally it was supposed to be 1% and then it was 2% and now it's 4%. And it's like, it's not... But Mike, pray the gay away pens. <laughs> he's on it. on the case. So on <laughs> it. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to fix all oh, of our shit. Don't God. worry. Did you hear uh, Trump uh, recently was like, no, we're not going to accept the, the, the ship, you know, because we're, we're not going to accept the numbers. Numbers are really good right now. We're, we're keeping it low um, because, you know, uh, we don't, it wasn't even our fault with the ship. So we're not taking them. Um, so I don't know exactly what that was in reference to, but I was... We didn't start the fire, folks. <laughs> it was always burning. Burn. Since the world's, the world's been, turning, been turning. Everyone's saying it. We all know it. It's tremendous. It's tremendous fire. Yeah, we he, didn't start he it. He came out, he's like, you know, this thing it might not be a big deal. You know, people are saying it's going to be a big deal, but maybe, you know, it's going to be not a big deal. Like, yeah, maybe it'll be like, here we'll, and then we'll wake it'll up be gone. One day, it'll <laughs> just be gone. So speaking of... This Mike, is, Mike Pence told him that. One <laughs> thing that was very disturbing. So when I went to the grocery store... There was no bleach. There were no uh, disinfe- antibacterial oh, disinfecting wipes. There was not a single bottle of rubbing alcohol. There was not a single bottle of hand sanitizer. There was very little toilet paper. Like all of the like food stuff were fine. They were very well stocked. Yeah, but, they, they um, were good with rice and beans and all that. They had lots of rice and beans. You guys have fucked up priorities. Let me tell you yeah, something. Yeah, I guess so. A bottle of bleach ain't going to save you a five pound bag of rice. Yeah, probably will. Probably will. Um, but yeah, it's really like, it was very, jar- and my mom even said like when she went grocery shopping, they just were out of anything disinfe- of any disinfecting nature. Interesting. Actually, if you stick your face in a, a container of rice, it sucks the, the disease out of you. Oh, no, it's your feet. Oh, is it yeah, the feet? Oh, no, okay. it's your iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Corona, on the bright side of coronavirus. Going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Going straight to hell. Deepest level. Um, quarantined Wuhan kids find brilliant way to get out of schoolwork. So these school children in, uh, in Wuhan were quarantined at home and they were given an app with which to complete their schoolwork. Um, but you know what? That's like fucking, that's like having a snow day and being like, mm, no snowmen for you. You got to do algebra. Like that sucks. If yeah. they have to stay home, they should at least be able to play video games and look at TikTok. Do they have TikTok in China? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's invented in China. It's fucking rules. Cool. So let these kids tick tick on the talks. 
Which, side note, I just discovered that if you spend two hours straight on TikTok, they give you like a wellness message that's like, hey, maybe you should get off TikTok. Did you find uh, this out yourself? Yeah. <laughs> it, did it help? Did it? Was it like, no, a, did you Pokemon I, go out and play? Fuck no. I fucking kept talk, talking and ticking all night long. So these quarantine kids were relieved to be off school, obviously, until they learned an app called Ding Talk had been adopted so kids could get lessons and homework remotely. But that didn't stop the children from beating the system. They spammed the app on the app store with one-star reviews until it had such a low rating that it got removed from the app store. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The app uh, on social media uh, actually begged for mercy, saying, I'm only five years old myself. Please don't kill me. <laughs> Yo, Wuhan gang ain't nothing to fuck with. Uh, no, I, I, that's, that's, that is, it's so, it's pretty fucked up. That they, what do they name it? Ding talk? What is it? So ding is in like ding, ding, ding. Yeah. And then talk is in talking. Oh, talk. Oh, I, oh, talk. Yeah, I, I thought they were trying talk. to like. Yeah, like, do a TikTok. Do a TikTok. Uh, yeah, they're like, no, kids, it's fun. It's no, it's ding. It's just like TikTok, ding but it's math. Talk. Yeah. Okay. Talking. No, I mean, we're getting lit over fractions. <laughs> 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 no, I, um, my fellow educators out there, you know, just take the day off, man. Like, take take the like world, the two months off. Yeah, yeah and like, the world is not going to fall apart. It's if, stressful to be quarantined. You yeah, know? like it's scary. Yeah, it's scary. especially especially when it's been ongoing for a long time. So maybe you should be able to take a fucking break. And if you can just, like, push the work to your students through an app, then, like, one, you are proving that your job is not important enough to, like, give you a full-time job. Yeah, that's a self-scab. Right, yeah, that's a way to re- get so your... That's a dangerous precedent. Yeah, it's right, a way yeah. to automate your job out of... <laughs> yourself out of the job real fast. Uh, and two, even if you don't get just automated out of the job, it's like, oh, okay, so we don't need to build schools, we can just maintain this app, and, like, everyone can just learn from home, and you can be in a call center... Like that's cool, right? Like, yeah, don't don't do this. Don't yeah, this take the days off and like give them you know give them some busy work. Give them a book to read. Give them some math lessons to do. But don't Treat like, it like re- summer vacation. Don't like require them to be like consistently doing and turning in assignments while they're on quarantine. I just think that's absurd. Yeah. If the quarantine lasted a month, then yeah, okay, maybe we should start worrying about how to educate the youths. But in the meantime, chill the fuck out, dude. Let them let them play some. Some vidya, let them, you Play know, the vidya games. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Wuhan has been under quarantine since January. Yes, but so, I, but I think yeah. the kids were only recently quarantined okay. from school. Well, I don't know. I could be. Well, I feel like even then, it's like okay. Well, you know, it sucks, but you know, like summer is going to be a month late or something. That's what they did in Florida when all those hurricanes came through. Uh, I remember, like, my junior, senior year of high school. That's what happened to us too. Well, yeah. we actually one year had so many bomb threats that we lost like three weeks of summer vacation whoa <laughs> we, we were having bomb threats like every other day that's and we wild. were missing like whole half days of school because of bomb threats yeah Talking which is another like the times where those those boomers like trot out like well we were told that to get under our desks and we thought we were going to be 
nuked by the the ruskies duck and cover yeah uh, yeah and they're like that was traumatizing it was like but i thought like my, the weird kid in algebra my science was, lab gonna was gonna kill blow, us yeah i thought my yeah. science lab was gonna blow up yeah i thought we were gonna get shot by like, and that shit actually happened it, it was like yeah, yeah right. right none of you guys got nuked yeah, yeah. some and, of us got blown up and shot and also there's the whole thing of like the uh the shooter preparedness drills that they're making like school children go through they're building they, whole schools with like no corners so that no one can hide like yeah they're building tactical schools yeah. <laughs> like so for, for for kinetic engagement yeah but we're all the snowflake generation yeah so, you know yeah. they, but, they but, literally but, have but, things that to help barricade the doors that are like built into a lot of the school door frames now so that was how some of these dormitories were built in china these like not dormitories but like apartment style complexes but do where, they have guns in china for the quarantine oh for the quarantine. Shit. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah like they were lo- like so there were all these apartment complexes where the doors only opened outward and people have been barricaded into their apartments for the Jesus. quarantine yeah which is one way to enforce a quarantine yes yeah, yeah um, make it a prison put everybody inside of a hotel t- <laughs> style solitary confinement prison and it'll all be fine uh, it's pretty and this isn't like CIA propaganda that I'm parroting. There are like video. There are like many, many videos of this online. Oh yeah, like yeah. actually, people people freaking the fuck out about being locked in there. Yeah, in also area. street level violence containing people to neighborhoods. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone from Blizzard is listening right now, now would be a good time to offer free months of like access to wow servers or something no yeah. now's a good time to hike up your prices what the fuck are you talking no, about you, but you, also, you get them now you know you and and then you know you hook them now while they're stuck in their house but you know like these kids it's such like ingenuity you know like they literally beat the system they're heroes yeah they're fucking <laughs> heroes um, uh, you know which makes me think you know like uh blackboard has an app on the app store on, on both app stores you know if you give that a bunch of one star and reviews, it does suck and it, it actually does suck sucks. so you really probably should give it a bunch of one star reviews and then you know i i i would my i wouldn't about, be able to do a lot of my job and like students wouldn't be able to do some of their that, work the thing about blackboard is that i think it sucks a lot more for faculty and is probably pretty good for students. Like it sort of creates an automatic organization for students. The problem is that it requires. My students hate it. Really? Do they? Yeah. Okay. They all hate cool. it. Cool. Then kids, if you're out there, one star that Blackboard app because it fucking sucks. Your professors hate it. We hate it. All right. So you guys saw that Governor Cuomo issued a state of emergency for New York State because of Is the it cases. New York State or New York City? New York State. Oh, yeah. shit. Uh, for the whole state, because now we got two in Saratoga, uh, which is, uh, we had mentioned earlier, it was Saratoga. And for me, uh, that w- makes me really concerned because my band's first show might be canceled, guys. Oh, We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully it's not. I don't want to like drum up a controversy before anything happens. But if uh, a state of emergency goes into effect and it does affect like nightlife, because we're talking two Thursdays out from now, who knows how bad it might get between now and then. Yeah. Well, um, let's turn this into a plug, though. So two Thursdays from now. What's the date? Uh, March 19th. March 19th. Yeah. Zombie Giuliani. Yeah. So it's a punk band. Uh, we have like some songs that are like a little on like the popular side. And we have some songs that are like sort of, you know, like stoner shoegaze, like, you know, jam, uh, but like heavy, uh, like music kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. I've been playing with these two guys for a while, uh, Andrew and Jim, and 
we've been practicing some songs that Andrew has written. And it turns out that uh, he wrote 10 songs in like the last, I think, several months. One of which uh, he got help with the lyrics on. But uh, yeah, he's just been pumping them out. So we created our first LP uh, yesterday. Um, at least it's like very the rough, good. Yeah, like yeah. the rough cut. Um, and yeah, I guess we can play out one of the songs. Yeah, we're going to do the, um, we're going to play it out between the end of the episode proper and the Kropotkin, and then we'll also, I think we'll play out at the end of the Kropotkin, and if you want to do two songs oh, yeah, um, yeah. Well, that we, you guys can get a taste of. Yeah, at least one of them will be Dream Big, because uh, that's the one that's personally my favorite right now. Awesome, awesome. Capital Region folks, please uh, make it out to the show. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be on March 19th at 12 Caroline Street at a place called Desperate Annie's, and um, we're going to be playing with Machine Revival and toned um and yeah we're a punk band and it's gonna be it's gonna be fun it's gonna be awesome and you're gonna get to hear a little taste of it in this episode and um yeah really excited for you chris the rules thank you yeah. fucking rules dude. yeah it sounds really good it, it sounds slaps, great the yeah. ki- as the kids say the kids do say that things slap and i would yeah. i would concur that this does slap I've been spending a lot of time making music for fun. Um, you know, I, I did the intro to this show and for our bonus episode, mm-hmm. uh, those are just like little beats that I make for fun, like by myself. Um, uh, but I also have uh, been making beats with my, uh, my hip hop friends, um, under the, um, the moniker squad, uh, S K W A D. And we're going to be trying to put out a record in the next year as well. Uh, but this is the first punk band I've played in, um, for a while, like I played a little bit when I was at Ecovative, like maybe seven years ago in a band for like, uh, two or three months, but this one has been going on for probably like four. So it feels good to play punk rock music again. You know, that was something that, uh, I've been listening, shout out to, um, the podcast, Dear Young Rocker that my friend Chelsea, uh, did. And that sort of blew up because now it's on, uh, iHeartRadio. Um, and, uh, it's all about her high school experience, like being in rock bands and stuff. And it brought the nostalgia back really intensely right at the time when I started playing in a new punk band. Um, and yeah, punk music's awesome. Uh, shout out to all the rockers and uh, yeah, come to our show. All Hell right. yeah. All right. Well, gentlemen, I do believe that the good folks listening can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds pod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweeds pod. And uh, if you have any comments or feedback or anything else, uh, you know, send that on over to us at ironweedspod at gmail.com. Please, if you can, rate and review us on iTunes. It's so helpful. Um, And we really appreciate your uh, ratings and reviewings of our lovely, lovingly crafted show. And um, we're about to begin recording our next bonus episode I'm in which about it. we are going to talk about some very interesting things including uh eric prince and spies yeah eric prince is hiring some spies for very nefarious works so um and, yeah and for listeners who aren't previously aware of uh prince's work he is the uh, brother of our uh director of uh education secretary uh, of education secretary of education uh betsy devos mm-hmm. and is a 
the world's top organizer of a paramilitary group, which constantly changes names because they're constantly death squads and getting a really bad name for themselves. Uh, used to be known as Blackwater. I forget what it's, it's called like now. It's like Academy now. I yeah. Think. And they were she services she, somewhere yeah. in between. Yeah. Sounds, they're the only, so, sounds like a, like a, a, um, like a, like an indie band. Yeah. They're the only <laughs> private air force in existence and they're, uh, purchasable by any warlord, uh, who can, you know, pay the bill. So, so yeah, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Eric Prince and his uh, most recent nefarious activities on our bonus. And if you would like to hear that bonus, you can head on over to patreon.com slash ironweeds and give us as little as $1 a month. And what's the Kropotkin we're going to be so listening today, to? Cr- today's dose of Kropotkin is uh, ways and means. And there are, folks, let me tell you, a lot of numbers, a lot of numbers in this chapter, but it's quite short. And I think, you know, it still does a pretty good job of describing you know, like the here, Kropotkin tries to get into kind of the practicalities of of what he wants. I don't, you know, it's it's nice to see him give it a give it a go. I don't find it particularly convincing. Part of that is just because you know it's from a different time. It's from a time when like, but he basically lays out how many hours of labor it takes to get certain necessaries of life, mm-hmm. and he's so he's trying to show you that like. We are working so much more and so much harder than we have to simply because there is a capitalist class and a series of middlemen who serve them and then a middle class like stratum of society that are just sucking wealth and resources out of the working poor. And so that that's sort of his argument. And that is an argument that I very much co-sign. I do think that all of us, especially like, you know, folks who are less comfortable than the three of us are are just, but including us and including everybody that you know, unless you know millionaires, all of us are working too hard. And it's because our labor value is being extracted. And this was 130 years ago. So think about the amount of productive capacity multiplication we have as a species Absolutely. like generated in the last 130 years. Like, And there's one argument that he makes that I think is super relevant to this uh, political moment that we're living in, where he talks about how the elites will point to a particular sector of sort of the, you know, the workforce and say, but look at how well they're doing. And it's always, you know, some sort of element of the working class that is, for whatever reason, at that time, privileged above other elements of the working class. And so they, you can point to them and say, well, but look, they're happy. Do you want to take that away from them? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Uh, (laughs) Union-based employer offered insurance. Um, And his point is that, yes, but that class is always precarious like that can be taken from them at any time which is again the case with the supposed union benefits which you know obviously we're a very pro-union podcast but like again i think it's just a way that he remains relevant to us today and yeah i hope you enjoy it and then the chapter that we're going to be doing next is on luxury and i'm i'm quite excited for that chapter so yeah uh and that's where he basically goes into like how through these ways and means we can like it shows you how much time is left over in the workday for uh, luxury and art and culture leisure. and leisure. And so, um, yeah, so this does a really good job of setting up that argument. So I hope you enjoy it. All, All right. right. Well, until next week, folks, thanks for tuning in. Bye bye. Bye
Chapter 8. Ways and Means If a society, a city, or a territory were to guarantee the necessaries of life to its inhabitants, and we shall see how the conception of the necessaries of life can be so extended as to include luxuries, it would be compelled to take possession of what is absolutely needed for production. That is to say, land, machinery, factories, means of transport, etc. Capital in the hands of private owners would be expropriated and returned to the community. The great harm done by bourgeois society, as we have already mentioned, is not only that capitalists seize a large share of the profits of each industrial and commercial enterprise, thus enabling them to live without working, but that all production has taken a wrong direction, as it is not carried on with a view to securing well-being to all. For this reason, we condemn it. Moreover, it is impossible to carry on mercantile production in everybody's interest. To wish it would be to expect the capitalist to go beyond his province and to fulfill duties that he cannot fulfill without ceasing to be what he is, a private manufacturer seeking his own enrichment. Capitalist organization, based on the personal interests of each individual trader, has given all that could be expected of it to society. It has increased the productive force of work. The capitalist, profiting by the revolution affected in industry by steam, by the sudden development of chemistry and machinery, and by other inventions of our century, has endeavored in his own interest to increase the yield of work, and in a great measure he has succeeded. But to attribute other duties to him would be unreasonable. For example, to expect that he should use this superior yield of work in the interest of society as a whole would be to ask philanthropy and charity of him, and a capitalist enterprise cannot be based on charity. It now remains for society to extend this greater productivity, which is limited to certain industries, and to apply it to the general good. But it is evident that to guarantee well-being to all, society must take back possession of all means of production. Economists, as is their wont, will not fail to remind us of the comparative well-being of a certain category of young, robust workmen, skilled in certain special branches of industry. It is always this minority that is pointed out to us with pride. But is this well-being, which is the exclusive right of a few, secure? Tomorrow, maybe, negligence, improvidence, or the greed of their employers will deprive these privileged men of their work, and they will pay for the period of comfort they have enjoyed with months and years of poverty or destitution. How many important industries, woven goods, iron, sugar, etc., without mentioning short-lived trades, have we not seen decline or come to a standstill alternately on account of speculation, or in consequence of natural displacement of work, and lastly, from the effects of competition due to capitalists themselves? If the chief weaving and mechanical industries had to pass through such a crisis as they have passed through in 1886, we hardly need mention the small trades, all of which come periodically to a standstill. What, too, shall we say to the price which is paid for the relative well-being of certain categories of workmen? Unfortunately, it is paid for by the ruin of agriculture, the shameless exploitation of the peasants, the misery of the masses. In comparison with the feeble minority of workers who enjoy a certain comfort, how many millions of human beings live from hand to mouth, without a secure wage, ready to go wherever they are wanted? How many peasants work 14 hours a day for a poor pittance? Capital depopulates the country, exploits the colonies and the countries where industries are but little developed, 
dooms the immense majority of workmen to remain without technical education, to remain mediocre even in their own trade. This is not merely accidental. It is a necessity of the capitalist system. In order to remunerate certain classes of workmen, peasants must become the beasts of burden of society. The country must be deserted for the town. Small trades must agglomerate in the foul suburbs of large cities and manufacture a thousand things of little value for next to nothing, so as to bring the goods of the greater industries within reach of buyers with small salaries. That bad cloth may sell. Garments are made for ill-paid workers by tailors who are satisfied with a starvation wage. Eastern lands in a backward state are exploited by the West, in order that, under the capitalist system, workers in a few privileged industries may obtain certain limited comforts of life. The evil of the present system is therefore not that the surplus value of production goes to the capitalist, as Robertus and Marx said, thus narrowing the socialist conception in the general view of the capitalist system. The surplus value itself is but a consequence of deeper causes. The evil lies in the possibility of a surplus value existing, instead of a simple surplus not consumed by each generation. For that a surplus value should exist means that men, women, and children are compelled by hunger to sell their labor for a small part of what this labor produces, and, above all, of what their labor is capable of producing. But this evil will last as long as the instruments of production belong to a few. As long as men are compelled to pay tribute to property holders for the right of cultivating land or putting machinery into action, and the property holder is free to produce what bids fair to bring him in the greatest profits, rather than the greatest amount of useful commodities, well-being can only be temporarily granted to a few, and is only to be bought by the poverty of a section of society. It is not sufficient to distribute the profits realized by a trade in equal parts, if, at the same time, thousands of other workers are exploited. It is a case of producing the greatest amount of goods necessary to the well-being of all, with the least possible waste of human energy. This cannot be the aim of a private owner, and this is why society as a whole, taking this view of production as its ideal, will be compelled to expropriate all that enhances well-being while producing wealth. It will have to take possession of land, factories, mines, means of communication, etc., and besides, it will have to study what products will promote general well-being, as well as the ways and means of production. How many hours a day will man have to work to produce nourishing food, a comfortable home, and necessary clothing for his family? This question has often preoccupied socialists, and they generally came to the conclusion that four or five hours a day would suffice, on condition, be it well understood, that all men work. At the end of last century, Benjamin Franklin fixed the limit at five hours, and if the need of comfort is greater now, the power of production has augmented too, and far more rapidly. In speaking of agriculture further on, we shall see what the earth can be made to yield to man when he cultivates it scientifically, instead of throwing seed haphazard in badly plowed soil as he mostly does today. In the great farms of Western America, some of which cover 30 square miles, but have a poorer soil than the manured soil of civilized countries, only 10 to 15 English bushels per English acre are obtained. That is to say, half the yield of European farms or of American farms in eastern states. And nevertheless, thanks to machines which enable two men to plow four English acres a day, 
100 men can produce in a year all that is necessary to deliver the bread of 10,000 people at their homes during a whole year. Thus, it would suffice for a man to work under the same conditions for 30 hours, say six half days of five hours each, to have bread for a whole year, and to work 30 half days to guarantee the same to a family of five people. We shall also prove by results obtained nowadays that if we had recourse to intensive agriculture, less than six half-days' work could procure bread, meat, vegetables, and even luxurious fruit for a whole family. And again, if we study the cost of workmen's dwellings, built in large towns today, we can ascertain that to obtain, in a large English city, a detached little house as they are built for workmen, from 1,400 to 1,800 half-days' work of five hours would be sufficient. As a house of that kind lasts 50 years at least, it follows that 28 to 36 half-days work a year would provide well-furnished, healthy quarters with all necessary comfort for a family. Whereas when hiring the same apartment from an employer, a workman pays 75 to 100 days work per year. Mark that these figures represent the maximum of what a house costs in England today, being given the defective organization of our societies. In Belgium, Workmen's cities have been built far cheaper. Taking everything into consideration, we are justified in affirming that in a well-organized society, 30 or 40 half-days work a year will suffice to guarantee a perfectly comfortable home. There now remains clothing, the exact value of which is almost impossible to fix because the profits realized by a swarm of middlemen cannot be estimated. Let us take cloth, for example, and add up all the deductions made by landowners, sheep owners, wool merchants, and all their intermediate agents, then by railway companies, mill owners, weavers, dealers in ready-made clothes, sellers and commission agents, and you will get an idea of what is paid to a whole swarm of capitalists for each article of clothing. That is why it is perfectly impossible to say how many days' work an overcoat that you pay three or four pounds in a large London shop represents. What is certain is that with present machinery they no doubt manage to manufacture an incredible amount of goods. A few examples will suffice. Thus, in the United States, in 751 cotton mills for spinning and weaving, 175,000 men and women produce 2,033,000,000 yards of cotton goods, besides a great quantity of thread. On the average, more than 12,000 yards of cotton goods alone are obtained by a 300 days' work of nine and a half hours each, say, 40 yards of cotton in 10 hours. Admitting that a family needs 200 yards a year at most, this would be equivalent to 50 hours' work, say, 10 half days of five hours each. And we should have thread besides, that is to say, cotton to sew with and thread to weave cloth with, so as to manufacture woolen stuffs mixed with cotton. As to the results obtained by weaving alone, the official statistics of the United States teach us that in 1870, if workmen worked 13 to 14 hour days, they made 10,000 yards of white cotton goods in a year. Thirteen years later, in 1886, they wove 30,000 yards by working only 55 hours a week. Even in printed cotton goods, they obtained, weaving and printing included, 32,000 yards in 2,670 hours of work a year, say about 12 yards an hour. Thus, to have your 200 yards of white and printed cotton goods, 17 hours work a year would suffice. 
It is necessary to remark that raw material reaches these factories in about the same state as it comes from the fields, and that the transformations gone through by the piece before it is converted into goods are completed in the course of these seventeen hours. But to buy these two hundred yards from the tradesmen, a well-paid workman must give at the very least ten to fifteen days' work of ten hours each, say one hundred to one hundred and fifty hours. And as to the English peasant, he would have to toil for a month or a little more to obtain this luxury. By this example, we already see that by working fifty half-days per year in a well-organized society, we could dress better than the lower middle classes do today. But with all this, we have only required sixty half-days' work of five hours each to obtain the fruits of the earth, forty for housing and fifty for clothing, which only makes half a year's work as the year consists of 300 working days if we deduct holidays. There remains still 150 half-days' work which could be made use of for other necessaries of life—wine, sugar, coffee, tea, furniture, transport, etc. It is evident that these calculations are only approximate, but they can also be proved in another way. When we take into account how many, in these so-called civilized nations, produce nothing— How many work at harmful trades doomed to disappear, and lastly, how many are only useless middlemen? We see that in each nation the number of real producers could be doubled, and if instead of every ten men, twenty were occupied in producing useful commodities, and if society took the trouble to economize human energy, those twenty people would only have to work five hours a day without production decreasing. And it would suffice to reduce the waste of human energy at the service of wealthy families, or of those administrations that have one official to every ten inhabitants, and to utilize those forces to augment the productivity of the nation, to limit work to four or even to three hours, on condition that we should be satisfied with present production. After studying all these facts together, we may arrive then at the following conclusion: Imagine a society. Comprising a few million inhabitants, engaged in agriculture and a great variety of industries, Paris, for example, with the department of Seine-et-Oise. Suppose that in this society all children learn to work with their hands as well as with their brains. Admit that all adults, save women, engaged in the education of their children, find themselves to work five hours a day from the age of twenty or twenty-two to forty-five or fifty. And that they follow occupations they have chosen in any one branch of human work considered necessary. Such a society could, in return, guarantee well-being to all of its members. That is to say, a more substantial well-being than that enjoyed today by the middle classes. And moreover, each worker belonging to this society would have at his disposal at least five hours a day, which he could devote to science, art, and individual needs, which do not come under the category of necessities. But will probably do so later on, when man's productivity will have augmented, and those objects will no longer appear luxurious or inaccessible.